Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 21. It's June, which means that Father's Day is upon us. For many children in foster care, Father's Day is a loaded holiday. Some have never met their fathers, if their fathers have even been identified. Others have fathers who are completely out of the picture, meaning they're no longer involved or engaged with their children's lives. But why is that so common? Do the dads just not care? My guest today is going to challenge every preconceived notion you have of the men whose children are in foster care. Marvin Charles has emerged as a community and national leader in creating stronger fathers and healthier families. Because of his own powerful story of separation from and then reunification with his own family, parents, and children, and his 15 plus years of helping others reclaim the positive role of fathers to their families, he's an experienced and trusted mentor and advisor. He has traveled all over the U.S. to speak about empowering fathers, to learn from other national leaders, and to share his successes with other organizations hoping to implement fatherhood programs. Marvin Charles is an ordained minister, and his extraordinary effectiveness comes from his ability to see through the pain and threats of those he counsels to the powerful change made possible by embracing a living God and a larger purpose. Today's podcast features a man who stands as living proof of what's possible for the men whose children are in foster care. And as a foster parent, I'm humbled and challenged by his story. And I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. The first question I always ask my guests is, when did your life first intersect with the foster care system? So that would be maybe a great place for us to start. Okay, okay, okay. Um... I didn't know that I was uh, had been in the foster care system until I was uh, nine years old, and um, and the reason I found out then is because my mother passed away at nine. Um, my sister and I, she was seven and I was nine, and just came home from school, um, uh, and they were taking my mother out of the home in Amleth. I knew she had been sick for a couple of days, laying on the couch, but they took her to the hospital where she didn't come back. And my, her brother-in-law, my uncle, my father's, um, uh, brother-in-law, um, came to the house and said to my sister and I that your mother passed away and that you guys really belong to the state, but we're going to take you in now. And this was the aunt and uncle that, you know, you had to dress up and, and to go over their house and you never wanted to go. They had the plastic on the furniture, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well-to-do people. Well, now we were instructed to live with them. And so that was the first time I found out that that wasn't my mother, that wasn't my father, and that we were uh, wards of the state. And that's how they put it. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm nine years old. In fact, a week later, my mother was buried on my birthday. And they buried her, and they had party. People was drinking. I call it a party. I'm two years old. I don't know what's really going on, but nobody ever explained to my sister and I what happened, what went on. And to this day, I'm impacted by that, right? Uh, My father uh, 
you know, I knew at a very early age that he couldn't read or write and that he, you know, he was, he was just a person that worked and provided for us. But, um, his sister convinced him that he needed to give the kids up. I guess, I don't know. Um, so I went to live with my aunt and uncle and there was, uh, abuse that took place in that home. Uh, to the point that I ran away. And when I ran away, I ran to the youth center. So that's, there's a record of that. And, uh, um, I got some advice from, so, so I went in elementary school. I did, uh, elementary school. And then my uncle packed my clothes up one day and drove me to my father's house and said, this is where you're going to live. I, I need, I, I'm tired of you guys being here. And so he took my sister to uh, one of my mother's friends who had a daughter and she was there. And then um, two years later, I got in some trouble and he brought me back away from my dad's house and brought me back. And uh, I wore Catholic uniform to a public school. I was in middle, I was in middle school and then I went into high school. And then my second year, towards the end of my second year in high school, I went to Ingram High School uh, I was, I couldn't take it anymore that, that what was taking place at home. I, there was, it was so strict. And so, so I devised a strategy with one of my guiding counselors. He said, don't run away. If you run away, the police will just pick you up and bring you back. So you need to go to the juvenile, the youth center. And so my uncle threatened to, uh, punish me. And he had this weird way of doing it. He would, make me go find some bricks. I would crush the bricks up, kneel in them while he held the strap over me. I mean, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And I would hold two more rocks in my hand. And if I lowered my elbow below my waist, and he did that to me when I was 11 and 12 years old. Wow. Now I'm 16 and, and all because I lost my key to the front door and my sister, I begged her to hide hers underneath the mat. He came home from work, stepped on the mat, found the key and was waiting for me when I, when I came home. And then he told me, you go outside and get some bricks. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so when I went out to get the bricks, I kept going. I begged my sister to go with me. She went low. I ran all the way to the youth center, got down there, told them what was going on. They kept me two days later. They had a hearing, my uncle, my aunt, and myself put me right in the middle of them. And uh, and the judge asked him, did you do everything this little boy said, this this kid said? And my uncle told him, you know, and I believe if he lives in my house, he must abide by my rules. The judge slammed the mallet down and said, I'd make this kid a ward of the court. So I went from there. He said, the, the courts asked me, did I have, did I know anybody? I said, I had a friend. So they called the friend. I called the friend, asked him, could I come live with him? He asked his mom. She said, yeah. So I went to live with him. I was in the 11th grade, the second half of the 11th grade. Now I was 16, soon to be 17 years old. And at 18, you, you transition out of the foster care system, right? So yeah. I, was I was living with them when I transferred out of the foster care system. Uh, I, now, at 16 years old, when you give a young kid, a young urban kid, 
during the time of black power, superfly, the whole nine yards. He doesn't really have any guidance, right? Uh, the only guidance I had was mopping and cleaning up and cleaning up behind because that's what I was trained to do. I didn't know what to do with freedom. Even though I had it, I went and got a little job, and then I started hanging out with kids. I got this one friend. He seemed to have the same interests that I liked. I liked the things he liked, and, and so we just we just bonded together. And um, and then we went to see the movie Superfly. And for the first time in my life, I knew what I wanted to do. My grades were pretty good. I went to school. Uh, I I left Ingram, transferred from Ingram to Garfield High School in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Because if you ever wanted to mount to anything, Garfield had to be part of your resume. Mm-hmm. So I got to Garfield, uh, and I won Homecoming King, wow. and nobody liked it. That nobody liked when they called my name. The upperclassmen stomped their feet and said, "No, not him." I won that deal on a Friday. On Monday, I came back to the school. The uh, principal called me into his office and said I wasn't setting a good enough example. And I said, wait a minute, it just happened on Monday, Friday. So when did I get a chance to set an example? So I realized then those were grounds for me not to graduate. And so um, there was an alternative school across the street. I devised a strategy. I'll go over there because I knew when I was at Ingram High School, I got all the credits. All I needed was one. And I knew that, right? Mm-hmm. So when I came over across the street, talked to them, uh, it was a gentleman by the name of John Little, who was an activist around Seattle at that time. And the vice principal was a lady by the name of Valerie Colasurdo. And I went over there. He came over and said, the principal, Mr. Bass from Garfield, came over and said, he's still not graduating. And they agreed with that. And, uh, and being a kid who doesn't have parents that could represent him i i i got i got rolled over steamrolled over a bunch right so i dropped out of school my friend was going to run away i ran away with him we tried to get to canada we we got as far as bellingham the difficulty was his parents came and got him Mm -hmm. his parents came and got him Nobody came and got me, so I, I hitchhiked back to Seattle. I was um, homeless because I had graduated from the family's house to foster care. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, my friend came and found me, and his grandmother had an abandoned house here, so we broke in the house and that's where I stayed a few nights, but the rats were so big up that I couldn't take it anymore. And as being 18 years old, um, I wound up in Harvard View hospital having a nervous breakdown because I just couldn't understand all these things consecutively in my life were all disasters to me. What did I do to deserve that? That was my mindset and mind frame. So the vice principal of the alternative school that I went to came to the hospital and picked me up and brought me home to her house. I enrolled back in school, finished the next six months where I did get my diploma, and I lived with her. Now, when I first moved with her, she was a white woman, by the way. She, um, 
I stole her diamond ring, her wedding rings. I gave them to my girl. I carried pistols and guns and I mean, and drugs, and I did all of that. And then I don't know what happened to me, but <clears throat> something happened. I can't remember what it was, but I refrained. I went and got her rings back from my girlfriend. I gave them to her. I gave them back to her, her, the rightful Miss Colasurdo. I, I just <clears throat> tried to be this different person that I knew I had to, you know, I had the remnants of anyway. So, um, and one day I asked her, how, how will I ever repay you for all that you've done? You reached out. There were black families in the community that didn't open the door. Like she opened the door for me, you know? And, uh, so that resonated with me anyway. Um, uh, but I had some <clears throat> drugs. I had some pills that I had that I would keep. It would help me keep a little money in my pocket and, I don't even know how I came across them, but one of her daughters, her oldest daughter was living in the home and I told her I had them. She told me to let me see him. I did. She took them and popped them in her mouth and I smacked her. And so she told her mom and her mom said, Marvin, I put up with a lot of stuff, but I can't put up to putting your hands on my kids. And I, I, I got it. So I left. Um, I was, um, couch surfing. I got a job. The job enabled me to get me an apartment, a little small apartment. And I did. And I just went to work every day. And maybe six months later, I went to a concert and I seen the daughter and she ran up to me and just bawled her eyes out, just bawled her eyes out. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I couldn't tell my mother that I was taking drugs. And I just I, I, and at this time, I was like, you know, my life's been so up and down and crazy and never been so, don't, don't, it, it wasn't your fault. It's just what's been happening to my life, you know? Um, so just, I guess that was a way of saying, I forgive you. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I just moved on. And so um, 1974 rolled around and I bought a car from the job that I was working, which was Unigard Insurance Group located on Bell Red Road, right where Microsoft, probably from where Microsoft is now. It was nothing there then. It was all woods. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bank gave me a loan. I bought me a car. I worked for another week. And then I loaded up my car and drove to California. And um, I was um, introduced to a life by some older guys that I was living around. And, uh, and they kind of showed me how to be a pimp. And so... I did that. I, I I stayed in California. I came back to Seattle a couple of times, but I wound up eventually living in Fresno, California. I left in 74 and I stayed gone till 94. Right. And uh, I came back to Seattle in 94 with a five-year-old son in the backseat of my car. I had two other children that I left in California. Those both were boys. I came here in 94 and I, the only thing I brought was a son and a crack hat that, that I had. I, I met a lady in Spokane, Washington, 
who I played house with for three years, and then I moved here. I actually ran off and left her, and then she came here, followed me here. And uh, I tried to play house with her and another young lady at the same time. And both of those ladies had a baby five months apart. Hmm. Um, and then um, I didn't, that was that job I had in 74 was the last job I had. So I came back here and the same father that couldn't read or write was now living in his own home. He was in his eighties and they found that discovered that he had cancer in the blood. So I wound up living with him uh, until I got on my feet with an apartment with the young lady I brought from Spokane and so I was running back and forth. I was running. Uh, my sister lived in an apartment complex that had another young lady in it. And so I was going from one lady's place to another lady's place. And, and life was becoming very miserable for me. And then um, uh, the young lady who lived in the building with my sister had a baby, another baby. So now I have two babies by one, another baby by another. I have uh uh, and the lady who had the two babies had a son herself. And so that went on. So I had a baby in 95 and, 90, and two in 96. And by 97, I am out of my mind. Two of the kids are in foster care. The youngest boy and the second daughter the state came through this crack den that we had and grabbed the kids and had been looking for me for two years, 96, 97. And so, uh, um, so my wife is named Jeanette. Jeanette was a lady who lived in the same building with my sister that had the baby. And then she had another one. Um, and right after she had the baby, the second baby, now the state has gotten one of the children, two children, her two children that she had, the state has gotten those two. And the other young lady with the daughter, she was pretty, got up and went to work every day. And so that child, um, was pretty safe, but the environment that, um, the other two children, other three children were in was, was, was really raggedy. And, um, so much. So I took care of the baby for six months in the midst of the crack binge and everything. And then, um, I just got mad one day. I got really angry, cussed out everybody in the house, took two cans of formula and the baby and left. I was desperate. I didn't know what to do, but I knew raising that baby in that environment was not the right thing to do. So I headed to Harborview Hospital, which was just a bus ride away, like 15 minutes. I lived on Beacon Hill. Um, Harborview was on Peel Hill. That's only 15 minutes from where I've been spending the last two years getting loaded and messing up my life. So I grabbed the baby, and my intention was to leave her on the steps of the hospital. And that's what I had to do. But nobody told me that changing the diapers and making bottles for this baby and singing to her was that, that there was a, a fatherhood bond that was being built that I was 
clueless to. Mm-hmm. Clueless to it. So I got to the hospital. I sat on the bench and I didn't have a relationship with Jesus or none of that. I just, I prayed with desperation prayer. Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll never do it again. You know, one of those kind of prayers. And then you turn around and do it again anyway, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, anyway, uh, I got to the bench. I, I couldn't do it. As desperate as I was, I couldn't do it. And and right around the corner was a woman's shelter. So I carried this baby and, and one's hip and the cans of formula. And I got down these stairs. There was a backpack opened just sitting there empty. So I felt like that was a sign. I dropped the pampers and the formula and that, put that on the other shoulder, went to the woman's shelter, knocked on the door. They let me in. And I said, is there anything you can do for a man who's 42 years old with a seven-month-old baby? And they told me, there's not a thing we can do. Your best bet is to take her to the CPS office. And as I, as I told you, I was desperate. So I got on a bus and headed to the CPS office. I walked into the door and sat down and they treated me like I was public enemy number one. Yeah. And I knew why, right? I have two children in the, in the system. They've been looking for me for two years with no compliance whatsoever. And then I walk in the door with another baby. They have no idea how humiliated I was. Yeah. But here, here's what something that came to my understanding. And that was, I was raised in the foster care system and I didn't like it, but I got two kids who are in the foster care system. And I need to be doing something about it. Because if I didn't like it, they surely didn't like it, yeah. right? Yes. But I hadn't been clear enough in my mind from drugs and alcohol to understand that, right? So here's what they did. They took the baby from me. I had to drive back to my apartment where Jeanette and I was at. She had to sign the baby over. I guaranteed them that they were... They weren't going to have any problems doing that because we both were messed up. So she signed the paper reluctantly, but she signed them. The lady took the babies, and I kissed her and told her, I'm going to get my life together. I'm just going to do whatever I got to do. So a few months later, I got into treatment in Issaquah, called Cedar Hills, and I had a 90-day stay. That was uh, April 16, 1998. So if God says the same, I'll have 22 years clean of drugs and alcohol, right? So, Mm -hmm. and the baby that I tried to drop off, that I dropped off at the uh, CPS office, uh, I wound up dropping her off at Langston University four and a half years, five years ago to get an education that she graduated from with a double major, I think Mm -hmm. she called it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that when we, so after I went into treatment, Jeanette um, followed me shortly afterwards. And then um, the state assigned a caseworker to us both. And the caseworkers looked at her and said, this is your fifth rodeo, so your chances are slim to none. 
And she looked at me and said, you're a man and your chances are just as worse or better, or just as bad or worse. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we, so then I was determined to try to fight for my kids. Um, and so I started, I, I messed up like everybody does. Um, that's why we call ourselves systems navigators because you have to learn the system in order to navigate the system. And what I kept doing in the beginning was making the mistakes, Jeanette and I both, by trying to compete with the system. They would say, well, this is Jeffrey. No, I'm Marvin. I'm not. And then then what it would cause me to do was to act out in the courtroom. Hmm. And, And then, and then, and then they could say, see, Your Honor, he's not ready to become a father. Look at it. Look at his behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I had to go and learn something. So there were some parenting classes that we did in community. There was some skill set understandings that we, we had to learn and in, 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 in how to navigate the system. And I remember one time they told me my kids to come home, and they changed their mind, and I got mad and stormed out the room. And uh, and a lady followed me out. She was a CASA worker. I call her my angel because I don't know who she was today. And she appeared and disappeared. She said, listen, you need to pay attention to the judge. Everybody else doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The judge is watching you. He's the one that determines your outcome in this. And I got it. So I went back in, whatever the judge told me he needed me to do, I didn't pay attention to anybody else. I went and did it. I went and did it. He said, I want you to take UAs every day. I took two UAs. Hmm. If he said, you, you, you need to go to this class, I just did what he told me to do. And when I realized that, that all I needed to do was obey what the courts asked me to do, then my kids would come home. And I was really preparing to do for my kids what nobody did for me. Yeah. And it, it took a little while. So the first task was um, Jeanette and I got married. Now, the first, first six months of marriage, she lived in one clean and sober house. I lived in another. Our curfew was 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. But we got through that. And then it came time for us to look for a place that when our kids come home, it would be suitable. So we found a little house in the Rainier Valley. Uh, The landlord lived on the premises. She had the garage converted into a one bedroom. So we lived in the house part. She lived in one bedroom and we just started preparing for our children to come home. We went and got jobs. We didn't like them, but we went and got, we knew what we needed to do. And so, so we we went about trying to create an environment that was conclusive to raising children. Um, and then, and then the day Jeanette went to pick up the children, um, I got a phone call from a lady who said she lived in Renton, Washington, and she was paid four hundred dollars to find me. And I was like, wow. She said, yeah, it was your mother, and she lives right down the street from you. Wow. She's been looking for you for 42 and a half years, and she's right down the street. So I said, well, I need to see her. She said, well, that's not really how it works. She said, I'm going to mail you some papers. I said, lady, if I've waited 42 and a half years, I shouldn't have to wait any longer. 
And she agreed with me. She, I guess she had been on the phone with my mom. And so I had to drive to her house, sign some papers, and then drive back to my neighborhood where my mother was standing outside on the corner with my niece and my sister, another, my birth sister. So my mother, when I met my mother, she told me um, that I had two brothers and two sisters, that she was 14 years old when she had me, and that her mother was pregnant at the same time, and that my grandmother was on state assistance, and the state wasn't going to allow her to have pay assistance, pay her assistance for her daughter and her grandson. So they took the grandson and put the grandson up for adoption. That story hit Seattle Times front page, and um, and it 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 impacted in such a way um, that the system that Jeanette and I was fighting began to, began to be a lot more lenient, hmm. right? Uh-huh. And so then I asked my mother about my father. And so she said, I haven't seen him in 43 years either, but I think I know where she is. She did her homework. We found my father living in Oakland, California. I jumped a plane. I went down to visit my father for the first time. He had had a massive stroke, but he was convalescing back. I got back to Seattle. My mother asked me about him. She jumped on a plane and she went down to see him and visit him. And within a month's time, he asked her to marry her. She said yes. Wow. And this was a prayer I prayed in, 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 in treatment. Treatment is where I began my relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, because things weren't feeling good for me. I'd been off drugs before by being incarcerated. But this is the first time I, I was off drugs and not incarcerated. And so I wanted to do all that I needed to do to line up with that because I needed to put some distance between me and my old behavior, and I felt like this was the easiest way to do it, and it 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 had. And so, um, so my mother and father got married. Wow! And then it hit the front page of the Seattle Times again. Only this time it hit the AP. Next thing I know. All the morning shows showed up at my house, uh, except for Good Morning America, invited me to New York, paid for it, and then we went on TV with Diane Sawyer, my wow. mother, my father, and myself, right? Wow. So it was this big the who, and then um, and then we flew to Germany and did some television shows. Just, it was just amazing, all the. But when the dust settled and all the hoopla went away, my wife and I sat down in our living room and said, you know, there are people we got high with, we did time with, we did crime with, that our children are facing the same situation. What can we do? What can we take out of this that what we've done that could be beneficial or help other families? And we put our heads together. We came up with, we need to create a program that would be able to take what we've learned and teach other parents how to navigate the system. There's a lot tied to the system. I I don't know if you know, and you probably do, so I won't take it for granted that you don't, but 
when children enter the foster care system, um, parents are slapped with a child support debt. Are you aware of that? Yes. Yeah. And I, from what I understand, that is one of the reasons that a lot of the fathers never, they, it's like an impossible debt. It's like an, a debt that they will never be able to pay. See, and what we did is we learned some tricks of the trade. But That's you know, not necessarily true. Well, let me let me just go back and ask because I would imagine that a lot of my listeners have no idea what we're talking about. So while I do know, um, can we talk a little? Just can we can we share a little bit yes. more about that for yes. the sake of listeners yes. who are kind of like, well, I'm not, I had no idea. No. So when a child comes into foster care, well, you can go ahead. You, you go ahead and explain it. Uh, okay. So so. So, um, so what happened was that um, um, I got a job, and my wife and I, we have four kids at home. We have the two boys, Marvin and Jeffrey. One's hers and one's mine. We came to the relationship with. Uh, and then we have two daughters. I have two daughters with her, uh, Marvin and Devotion. And then I have another daughter outside of the home that comes on the weekend. So we raised all five of them together. Okay. So, so, um, uh, but, but what happened was, so Jeanette, if you work and I work, then we're going to have to have daycare and the daycare is going to be super expensive and I'm not on welfare and you're not on welfare. So how are we going to make this work? And so what we did was I said, okay, if you stay home and I'll cover everything that I possibly can cover, you just take care of the kids. So we came to agreement. She wasn't real happy about it at first, but then understanding the care and time and energy that it needed and what was mine was hers anyway. We were a husband and wife. I'd never been married. She'd never been married. So we were just really trying to figure out how to do this. Yep. And then... Um, one day she went to the bank and there was no money in the bank and I just got paid and we couldn't understand why. Well, we found out child support garnishing all the money. Mm-hmm. Now the reason, and so we, how can you do it? I've never had child support debt, but what happens is she had one, but she had one because the children were in foster care. Yes. Right. So mm-hmm. we didn't know that. So she, she got real illicit with, with, the folks about this. She said, that's not my money. I don't work. It's his money. He gets up and goes to work every day. So how can you do that? Oh, you mean because my name was on the bank account? Well, he's my husband. He just felt like it. So she said, take my name off the bank account. And then what they did was restored the money that they had took out of it. And then she became really good friends with her caseworker. And the way we figured it out is that she would just pay for uh, three years. She paid uh, her income taxes. I would we file income tax, and she would pay that debt off. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, because the debt was owed to the state, they negotiated to where all she had to pay was three years of back pay, each uh, income tax return time. And then the debt would be squashed. Right? Yes. And people don't realize you can negotiate these debts. Um, I mean, there's right. just so many things that people don't know, you know, and it right. keeps them stuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, so when Jeanette learned that, what we did was then um, 
we created a 501c and we started working with families. I, I because I was an office installer on the Microsoft campus, I built her a little office. She would then get the kids off to school, and from the hours of ten and two, she would work with fathers, helping them. Our first client owed one hundred thirty-three thousand dollars in child support for four kids. Wow. Went to prison, got out of prison. Tried to not do the try to do the right thing this time, but found himself the child support was so overwhelming. He tried to do a little something on the side, got caught, went back to prison. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Jeanette got a chance to get hit when he got out the second time. He came to us because by this time, folks are aware we never did any advertising, but people that know people say, Listen, I know this lady that can help you. So she helped him. She got his child support down from $133,000 to $11,000 negotiated. And so that made Jeanette a big commodity. So people would start showing up at our house (laughs) during the day. Our landlord thought we were selling drugs. You're right. selling hope. <laughs> <laughs> we're not selling drugs. We're selling hope right. over here. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm. So, um, but here's some of the, the dynamics. I want to pause with the story and talk about some of the, the dynamics. So what we found out uh, in doing this work was that uh, through the child support um, system, uh, uh, fathers, most fathers would be in the hospital with the mothers when she's having the baby, right? Yeah. Most families, they, they're not married, but they but they are in a relationship and everybody wants. And so what we found out was that I asked men all the time, how many of you guys signed the birth certificate when you were in the hospital the baby was born? And all the guys raised their hand, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is, None of you signed the birth certificate, which you signed with a paternity affidavit, which is a promissory note that says you will pay child support. Hmm. You sign that. Even if you find out the baby's not yours, it's still you going to pay child support on it because you signed a legal binding document. Right? Mm-hmm. But most of them don't know that. You see the little feet and the little hands on the document, mm-hmm. then you assume, man, this is my child. I'm going to... But nobody tells them that. Right? Yeah. And so... Um, that's those are some of the areas that we try to inform in. I don't say don't sign it because there's some advantages to that too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but most of them are not aware they do it or they don't do it. And then what happens is it winds up biting them in the backside later on down the line because they didn't understand what they did or what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, we call that, that's a service we provide at dads and we call that child support management. Mm-hmm. Understanding. So a gentleman will come into our office and he'll say, well, I got child support issues. So we'll have him sign a release form. We'll fax a release form to the child support office. The child support office will then send Jeanette or our other staff his whole complete record, and then we can explain to him, this is what happened, and this is why you owe this, and you signed on board of this, and so you have to comply with this. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, true enough, but that's not a good enough excuse. But here's what we will do. We will see how we can help 
you to minimize this debt on behalf of you and your child, and then then you take up the next mantle, which is visiting your child or having a relationship with your child. Well, the mom won't let me see it. Well, there's some ways that you could be able to request that through uh, paperwork and, and, and a number of things, but you have to be willing to want to go pursue that, and here's what you're going to have to do. Now, one of the things that uh, my wife, Jeanette, who's become the expert resident in this arena, is that we don't do the work for you. Right. You have to do the work yourself. We will show you, teach you, walk you, but you have to do it, or, or, or we can't do it. And, and, and that has turned out to be a tool of a saving. Um, and then the other side of that, that so that's called, like I said, child support management. The other thing is um, um, parenting plans, uh, which when guys want to see their children and have some difficulty, then you can file what's called a paternity affidavit. I mean, a parenting plan. Mm-hmm. Parenting plan. And the parenting plan literally, you know, family law is not is designed where you don't need an attorney. Mm-hmm. But most folks, particularly in urban poor, feel like they need an attorney. Mm-hmm. And so they stay away from the process because I can't afford an attorney. I got child support. Out of it. And, and what I try to tell them is one has nothing to do with the other, hmm. if you're willing to listen. Mm-hmm. And so here's what you're going to have to do. And nine times out of ten, uh, the first start is you need to go get a birth certificate. Well, I, uh, if, if we do any of this work, and you go before the judge, and he sees that you have a birth, don't have a birth certificate, he's going to throw all this out. So don't even waste your time as well as mine. And you, you, you have to kind of explain to that degree so they get it. Right. And we've seen over 4,000 fathers in the last, since our beginning. And that's, that's equivalent to about a little more than over 10,000 children yeah. being reconnected. Yeah. And so, and so, so, so anyway, why, just, why don't you ask me a couple more questions? <laughs> oh man, this is so incredible. Just to get this background, because again, you know, the narrative from the foster parent side is so often one dimensional and dehumanizing to the people who, you know, who, who are, well, you know, who you were uh, and who many of the men who you serve. And I think it's just really important for so many reasons that, um, foster parents be much more informed and, um, and, Gosh, just challenged to not accept that really one-dimensional narrative, um, right, 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 and right. and to see that, um, well, to see what's possible. I mean, I I have watched some of the videos from your um, the work that you do at Dads, and uh-huh. to see what's possible to take someone, and even like what's been possible in your life to see you go right. from what you've been describing, which is just remarkable. Um, and it's too easy to write off people who are in the circumstances that you were in. Um, right. And and I I feel like we really have to decide right now we're not we're going to stop doing that we're going to stop writing off the parents of the children who are in our care. Uh, um, 
Yeah, that's that's huge. A whole nother door. Uh, so let me give you an example. So um, a person such as that is who you need to be friend because as you become a friend, then it gives him hope that he can stay connected to his child. Right? Mm-hmm. He will stay. He will stay connected. He'll have a reason to want to fight. And I didn't know what to do when my children came home, but I didn't have a choice. Um, and I, I tell people all the time now when you're in this situation, let's find, let's find you a mentor. Let's find somebody that can work with you to show you how to do it. Because we didn't know. We got four kids dropped in our lap, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they were all different ages. And I had to become a dad all the way around. You know what I mean? I had, yes. I had a... My oldest boy was uh, thirteen. My my yeah, my youngest boy was ten, and then I had we had three sisters, and so we had to we had to really make it work. And mm-hmm. and 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 if you don't make it work, then you're gonna have some difficulties. And so um, we we had to overcome the difficulties. Man, yes. it was just crazy, right? Yeah. But we made it. And now when I talk to my kids now, they say, Dad, I remember what you went through and what you went through. I can, I, I can, I might not be able to do the full thing you did, but I see why you did. And it's enjoyable to have conversations with my children now that yeah. see that, that remember that and know what we had to go through. Yeah. You have talked a lot about fatherlessness as being a major problem in culture across the board. And, um, and I know I, I worked on a project years ago with Christianity Today magazine where we connected with um, a man in Richmond, Virginia, who was leading a fatherlessness um, as they were treating fatherlessness as a public health issue and calling it an epidemic and sharing stats about all of the statistics that go along with fatherlessness. And you've shared kind of from your experience, the trajectory, while your story started earlier today on our conversation when you were nine, but your conversation, I mean, your story actually started when you were born to a 14 year old. Right. Um, right. And so it's almost like from the very start, you were set up in a lot of ways for this on this trajectory that against all odds you broke out of. And, um, now you're you're devoting your life and your wife, um, the two of you are devoting your life together to helping other dads, other men um, pick up the pieces. And I wonder, can you talk about the people who come into your doors, the people who come to you? What is the trajectory that you take them from? What happens when someone comes to you? You've talked about walking them through the practical things of navigating the system and negotiating a lower uh, child support pay uh, repayment and those practical things that are, are hugely Im- important to help people walk through. Can you talk about the personal transformation that you take these men through and how you go about that? Because I know there's a lot of mentoring and there's men involved who, many of whom themselves are, are kind of, um, have been restored and, and redeemed in a lot of ways. And now they're devoting themselves to help. Can you talk about how you do that? What do you do when you come alongside the guys who come to you guys? That, that's a great question. 
in the early days, I just jumped in on a personal note because I wanted to be a cheerleader and a coach at the same time. You could do it. And and that meant that a lot of times their children would have to come and stay at our house. Hmm. I had one guy who had two children that he used to go and visit in Vancouver, Washington. So he would drive. That's just the guy that owed the 133000 hmm. When he got connected to his children, he was motivated. Two children of his were adopted out, and his dream was to be able to connect with them yes. one day. So, yep. so when... So he came, he went to visit his kids in Vancouver, and then uh, the mom and the kids, when he went to visit, jumped in his car and said, I'm going with you. He's married and got a wife. He says, well, wait a minute, I don't. So said, well, I want you to take the kids. I just need a ride back to Seattle. And so sure enough, he brought the kids home. Uh, it was a little uncomfortable. I said, just bring them to my house mm-hmm. and then enrolled them in school with my kids because he was getting ready to quit his job or go. I said, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Let's you just bring the kids with my kids, drop them in my house. They go to school with my kids, come home, and then you just get off work at the right time and you just pick them up. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Let's try that. And so in the early days, that's what we did. We just kind of partnered up, right? Um, but as we've gotten on, I've I, um, matured in the work we've done. I wrote a book that talked about our story. And then following the book, the, the title of the book is Becoming Dad's A Mission to Restore Absent Fathers. Hmm. And, and then we wrote a curriculum based on the books. And so literally now I have classes going on uh, every eight weeks. Um, and, and that's what we were doing before the pandemic. Well, um, I have some really knowledgeable people who work for me who now have taken that curriculum and turned it into a Zoom class, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is the, the, the curriculum talks about the do's and don'ts and the things that we, particularly as urban fathers. See, when I started this journey, I looked for curriculums, and the curriculums that I, I ran across were for white urban men. Mm-hmm. I mean, suburban, suburban men. Yep. Yeah, and it didn't, it, it, you know, and so I stumbled across this this gentleman, uh, Dr. Ken Canfield. Somebody introduced me to him, flew me back to his operation. He's the president of the National Center for Fathering. <sighs> and um, he had he had a couple of curriculums, but they didn't really mesh with what the population I was working at, people coming off drugs out of the prison and all that. And, but they still had a desire to be with their kids. And then he had hired an African-American who wrote a quick curriculum called uh, Quenching the Father's Thirst. Hmm. I fell in love with that curriculum. Hmm. I went back and got trained in it, and I brought it back. And then the first thing I did was got 10 guys trained in the same thing in different organizations. So I wouldn't be the only one in the Puget Sound region mm-hmm. offering it, mm-hmm. right? But I'd be the only father in the program who would go as deep as you could go with the curriculum. And so we did. We learned. We started teaching and advocating it from here to, to Tacoma. And, um, and, and it was particularly pertained to urban fathers. And it had 
stuff in the curriculum like baby mama trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and these guys started relating to that. And then we started talking about it, having open discussions, which was not really a particular norm for black men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But what, what they did was they began to trust in the organization dads and then the tools that the organization offered, right? Mm-hmm. And we were getting child support stuff lowered and they were having success in court through through uh, uh, parenting plans and then even adoption. And, 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 and that began to, um, that, that began to snowball the belief. We've never advertised, but men started hearing, you did this for my friend. Can you do it for me? Can you do it? And we would say, yes, but you need to do this and you need to do this. And, and so, um, doing trainings and doing classes, they were volunteering to do that. Now, today, the dynamics are a lot different. Uh, we have an office in King County, one in Pierce County, and soon to move one, my hopes is, into downtown Seattle. Mm-hmm. Why downtown Seattle? Well, for the question you just asked, there are a group or a population downtown who are uh, homeless, tech-driven, and I believe that each one of those men down there has two to three children connected to him. Mm-hmm. And so the job or the goal of dads is how do we reach out and touch these men and empower these men to know that the children are still looking for them. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and what could we help them understand that they don't see Every man believes this. That's a man coming off the street. That's a man coming out of prison. I've screwed up and my children don't want to have anything to do with me. Hmm. Well, part of the training is, man, your children loved you from the day you walked out. Now, now, until you walk back in. Now, when you walk back in, are they going to be upset with you? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And you need to give them that opportunity. You do. And once you give them that opportunity... You can both walk through that together. Man, my kids ain't going to never talk to me. Well, I always tell guys like this, if you've ever did any telemarketing, you know they tell you to take three hard no's before you hang up the phone. Hmm. Well, it's the same process for trying to reconnect with your kids. Hmm. Take three hard no's, right? Mm -hmm. One of them, well, why did you leave me? Why did you? You got to be willing to answer those questions. Mm And be truthful about it. Mm, mm -hmm. And it's the greatest opportunity, whether you believe it or not, whether your feelings get a little crushed, whether that it's the greatest opportunity to connect with your child. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I have eight children and my relationship with the boys early on was not good, but I stayed consistent with them. Now, today, they're proud of their dad. They call me. They they do father. I mean, and I didn't have, I didn't have really, you know, four of my kids are born crack addicted. Hmm. So the reason I, 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 I'm, I'm reverting back to that is because we are our own worst enemy. I want you to imagine this in your mind. There's a, on a chalkboard, 
I draw a zero on one end and I draw an 80 on the other end. And that is, and I draw a line in between both of them. And that's the life expectancy of a human being, give or take a few years. And in the middle of that, I draw a 30. And then a few inches down, I draw a 43. Now, why did I do that? Because I started having children when I was 30 years old. But I didn't become responsible until I was 43. And, and, And responsible means... Uh, my kids know where I'm going. I'm not telling them I'll see you in a little bit, and they don't. Mm-hmm. The things I used to do on the on the front side of the 43, I don't do on the back side of the. And then guess what? At 43, I still had 30 years, 37 years left to replace the behavior I had in the first 13. Yeah. And I share that with men, and they get it. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody's pointed that out to them. Yeah, I, I mean, in my experience, from where I sit as a foster parent, having you know my perspective on the system, which is very different, um, uh-huh. but um, the the dads are just. I mean, they may be a name on the paper. In all, in all honesty, most of the time, they're not even named on the paperwork. Right. Right. Um, and uh, they just, it's, it's, they do what they can to engage the father. If he doesn't engage, they sever his paternal rights. Right. And, right, and right. then we move on. And, you know, usually it takes a little longer with the mom because she's harder. To, it's harder to deny who the mom is than it is the dad. Right. You know? Right. And, right. Um, and then, and then, you know, uh, so this whole idea of, of, of a, of a, of an organization whose work is devoted to supporting fathers who really are in many ways at rock bottom when it comes to their relationship with their kids. Their kids are in the system a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times. And um, I think it's just really important once again for my audience to be hearing this and to be really looking at the dads of the children in our care differently. And you've talked about adoption a couple times, and I would love to just mention something and maybe you could pick up the ball um, from what I'm going to say and and run with it. Uh And I know we've already been Uh on for a long time, so I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I just feel like this is such an important conversation that isn't being happened. It's not being had enough in the foster parenting world. It's probably being you know, had in other places, but not, not here. And it's that even if a child is adopted, that is not the end of their need to know their father. And I feel like people oftentimes put a button on an adoption story as if this child's adopted and lived happily ever after. And I, I've come to learn that that is not true. And even when a child is adopted, the, our children still long to know their father. They, they no want to question. know them, even if they end up being raised by someone else to give our kids this opportunity to have a relationship with their, you know, their biological father, to know that part of themselves. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because you mentioned adoption a couple times. And, you know, as an adoptive family, my husband and I have adopted five children. Um, and I say their parents live in our house. You know, we live with their their moms and their dads because they're never far from their minds. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. That's a, that's a great analogy for you to use. You 
you really have an opportunity to champion the cause of their parents because, I mean, so something you said that I don't I know if you really understand the depth of it. And here's what I mean by that. Um, that child's, his behavior of his parents for his parents is going to come out of him sooner or later. It can be bad or good, but his parents are going to come out of him. So to me, that would be a reason to be able to connect to some degree with that child. That ch- children are are very, very intelligent young people. I, I, I say that because um, we have a tendency to say, I'm going to protect the child. So I'm going to keep this from the child, keep that. But what we don't do is give enough credit for the child being intelligent enough to figure out, first of all, these ain't really my parents. Mm -hmm. So where are my parents? I spent years wondering if my parents abandoned me. Why did they leave me? Why did it? It wasn't until 43 years later that I met my mom and she told me what was happening. But that thought never left my mind. And I think that we don't give enough credit to the children who are caught up in this system or this situation, the the ability to think that they know. We feel that they're just going to know what we tell them. Mm -hmm. No, Mm -hmm. no, that is by far the wrong. Now, what happens is you give that child an opportunity to make a decision that says, well, you know what, this is my cup of tea now, so I'm just going to serve with this cup of tea. Right. Mm-hmm. The, my foster parents have been very honest and dear and clear to me. So I'm good to go. Right. Mm-hmm. That was like Miss Collisurdo for me. Mm-hmm. All the other situations I didn't know, but I knew she loved me, even though I didn't respect it. And I knew she loved me. Yeah. I knew. Listen, I looked for her for the first 10 years when I was putting my family together. Why? Because I wanted her to know that the situation she created for me was amazing and that's what children will do they will cherish the situation in but they want to know where they came from yeah why do i have any brothers and sisters and and it's almost to the point that that would haunt them right Mm -hmm. like it Mm -hmm. did me yeah right yeah now they won't and children are are really careful at not letting people know that they really feel the way they feel. Why? Because we don't, as parents, really give them permission to do that. They'll say, well, I thought later on you'll find out, well, I thought if I did that, it would hurt you, or you would think I was trying. All that we have to give them permission to think freely about themselves. Yes, yes. That's, does that and make that's sense? On, it absolutely does. And I have said this before, and I'll reiterate it now, that um, it's on us as the foster or adoptive parents to reiterate to our children that they have our permission and our blessing to wonder, ask, and ask about and love their parents. And, you know, sadly, not every parent who has the opportunity to be in a restored relationship takes it. I I know that. And, and, you know, we've, we've got, you know, different situations with each of our kids and I don't talk specifically about my kids, but at the end of the day, like you said earlier, 
You give your dads all of the tools that they need, but at the end of the day, they have to do it. And I would imagine some of them do and some of them don't. Well, you know, you could always tell who doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if you saw the fundraiser, that young man that came to that, that spoke at our our virtual fundraiser, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dawa, he, he came in and sat down and only then did he come to realize his role in the marriage relationship. And he was able to freely talk about the things that he did that he realized now jeopardized the family. Right. But you have to really create an environment for kids and fathers to do the same thing. See, see fathers don't understand that their kids are really forgiving. Right. Mm -hmm. Kids Mm -hmm. are forgiving. They are. But how do I know that I abandoned you? I didn't take care of you. So how can you forgive me? That's 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 the work that we have to do with the parents to understand that they're kids. I'll give you another quick story. My son, uh, Marvin, has two children and they live out of state and there's six and seven or seven and eight. And um, I gave him a Christmas present, a ticket to go and see them. He hadn't seen them in five years. And, uh, and, uh, and I was with him when he did. So he called me and he said, dad, will you get on the plane and go with me? I was like, Whoa, sure. I will. So I, we jumped on the plane. We flew into the town, got a hotel, a car, and he called the mom. And I said, whoa, 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 no, let's go check in the hotel and give her an address. That's going to make the difference in the world. And so while we were sitting there, he gave her the address and he said, dad, what if they have another father? What if they have somebody they call dad? What if, what if, what if? I said, son, let me explain something to you. Kids don't forget who their parents are. Mm-hmm. They don't have a, they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. That's you sitting here playing mental gymnastics with yourself. Yeah. You don't have to worry about that. So don't talk yourself out of that. When those kids got up to the room and kicked in the door, I cried for 30 minutes about how they jumbled Jim Tim and ran all over him yes. and everything. Yeah. Which, which then he says to me by the end of the day, Daddy, I ain't going to never not listen to you. You do know what you're talking about. Now, I don't know about you, but for a parent, to t- for a son to tell his parent that, that's like a major milestone. I'm okay? still waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> it, it, it well, my, I, let me tell you, I did left out the bed. My son's 30 years old now, so that's yeah. how long I had to wait for yeah. that. Okay? My parents had to wait yeah. well into my 20s, but I've started saying there you it to go. now. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the point I'm trying to make is that most people have to witness it, so you have to pad the skid. Yeah. You have to pad, you have to prepare them because they really won't believe it until it does happen. But that doesn't stop us from preparing the way for them. Yes. Right? Yeah. Preparing the way for the kids, preparing the way for the parents. Yeah. And because when it does happen, it's going to be so overwhelming for them, they're going to really just find themselves kicking themselves for saying, why did I not believe in the first place? What was wrong with me that I, I didn't see this myself. Well, trust me, you learn a lot by raising kids and not raising kids. There is a difference. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, there's so much more that I would love to dive into. We've been on for over an hour. And um, I wonder if I could have you back on in the future to talk some more about this, because I think it's so important. And Yes, you can. I, I do have a, a, an appointment in 15 minutes that okay. I've got to get to. So, well, um, if people want to learn more about your work and what you're doing and this initiative, they can go to aboutdads.org. There's so much good stuff there, aboutdads.org. And, um, and, you know, I think the last point that I would like to to make, if it's okay, is just to to bring Uh it back to the perspective of caregivers and parents, foster parents, adoptive parents of children, especially children in foster care that, um, that we have to make sure our kids know that it's okay to love, that there's enough love to go around and that we let our kids know they never have to choose. We never, you know, make them choose between the parents who have raised them for years, which may be a foster parent or an adoptive parent and the parents who gave birth to them, who they may not connect with again until they're older. Um, I I feel like there's just an onus on us as foster parents and as adoptive parents that we need to, to be committed to, um, communicating that to our kids all along the way and preparing them even for the day that they might have a chance to reconcile or, you know, reunite with, um, with their, their parents. And, um, that there's just, there's enough love to go around. And that as when we step into this role of being a foster parent or an adoptive parent, we need to embrace that we are entering into parenting. That's, that's different um, then it's, it's not a replacement for typical parenting. It's, it's a really different in some ways dynamic. It's everything normal parenting is it's PTA meetings, it's school, it's teachers, it's diapers, it's sick, you know, in the middle of the night, but it's also caring for our children's hearts and recognizing they need this permission. They need to know. And if we can do something to help make that happen, um, we really ought to do it for their sake. And I'm grateful for the work that you do and how you're helping make that happen. And I would love to see more foster parents get involved with that kind of work as well. Well, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak into the lives. And I have to say this before I get off the line, that if it wasn't for foster care, I don't know where my kids would be. Mm-hmm. Because foster care was what gave me the opportunity to go get clean, Mm. to go get well. Mm. And because of that opportunity to go get well, that's what I did. Mm. And I remember for years I wanted to go get well, but I didn't know what to do with my children. Right, right. And so I am a big fan of foster care, although I'm a bigger fan of what can we do to help families get back together. But I just know, and I would be remiss if I didn't say, if it wasn't for foster care, I don't know where my children would be or me with them because I needed to go get well. The mother needed to go get well, and foster care was a placeholder for me and my children. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, and I will be reaching out to you again. This is not over. This conversation's okay. not over. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the opportunity, and I, I don't mind sharing um, my story with people who made a difference in my story. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. God bless you. You've been listening to my conversation with Marvin Charles, executive director and co-founder of Divine Alternatives for Dads Services. 
To learn more about this incredible organization helping restore fathers to their children, visit aboutdads.org. If you like a Fostered Life podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you access your favorite podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying this resource, please consider becoming a patron of A Fostered Life at patreon.com slash afosteredlife. For more information and resources for foster parents, visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're out there on your own, consider joining The Flourishing Foster Parent, a community I designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on The Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for caring about foster care.